you for joining us for this episode of St John's Derm Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ali Paolino, and I'm a dermatology registrar at St John's. As you may already know, this is an educational podcast designed for healthcare professionals where we discuss topical issues and conditions in dermatology and provide you with practical and up-to-date information. I'll just quickly remind our listeners that the information is based on the latest evidence and expert opinion at the time of recording. The advice may not be suitable for every patient and any patient listening should consult their own physician regarding any medical issues. Today I'm joined by Dr Sarah Walsh who's going to be talking to us about cutaneous sarcoidosis. She's a consultant dermatologist at King's College Hospital in London and she runs a dedicated cutaneous sarcoidosis clinic that's been established since 2012 and it's part of a larger multidisciplinary sarcoidosis service there. So she has a wealth of experience in this area and I'm really excited that she's agreed to speak to us about this topic today so thank you thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you, Ali. So across the next two episodes of this podcast, we'll be discussing cutaneous sarcoidosis. In this episode, we'll focus on what sarcoid is, what causes it and who it affects, as well as the varied clinical features that characterise cutaneous sarcoidosis. Please then tune in to our second episode on cutaneous sarcoidosis that's going to focus on systemic involvement of sarcoidosis and how to screen for it. And then we'll cover the treatment and how to optimise traditional systemic treatments. So, uh, Dr Walsh, if we can start off by just defining what sarcoidosis is for our listeners. Um, Listen, Ali, thank you very much for such a kind introduction and for inviting me to talk to the podcast today about uh, sarcoidosis, um, which uh, is a disease that I've had a big clinical interest in, yeah, probably for about the last 10 years now since I I started my consultant post at at King's. And I guess the, the funniest thing about it is that up until I moved to London and became a consultant, I hadn't actually seen a great deal of sarcoidosis uh, because as we'll discuss no doubt later in the podcast, it's actually got a strong ethnic predisposition and the, the vast majority of the cohort that I look after at King's are skin type five and six. And where I trained in Edinburgh, uh, where the population was largely Caucasian, we very rarely got many cases, we rarely got cases of systemic sarcoidosis. But for those, uh, the uninitiated amongst the listeners, it is a chronic multi-system granulomatous inflammatory condition. Granulomatous inflammation refers to a specific type of inflammation that we diagnose, usually on biopsy. And that histological sample can be obtained from uh, a number of sites, including uh, the skin, which is obviously readily accessible. Uh, Sometimes we isolate tissue from lymph nodes, which are also enlarged in the condition, and sometimes from lung tissue or other organs that might be involved, like liver or kidney. And regardless of the tissue that we take, when we look at it histologically, we see very characteristic non-caseating granulomas. And these are a characteristic of inflammation that can be distinguished from tuberculous inflammation infection by the fact that they are non-caseating. So there's tends not to be necrotic tissue at the center of these granulomas. And that is the way in which we make the diagnosis. Coming back, I suppose, a few steps to um, what the disease actually is, I guess the most commonly affected organs would be the skin, the lungs 
and the eyes. And generally speaking, it is in one of those organs that the disease will first present. Probably you remember, Ali, from when you worked at King's, uh, obviously the, the one of the big ones we get is first presentation in the skin, which the patient may well have been fobbed off by various clinicians before they get to us. Um, or typically the skin manifestation hasn't been recognised as representing sarcoidosis. So the typical patient, when they get to us, will often be quite frustrated and confused and may have had their signs and their symptoms for for some time. And it's really only when you dig a little bit deeper in the history and ask them about things like shortness of breath, soreness or pain in their eyes, joint pain or discomfort, that you start to uncover some of the associated features that they may not have tied up with their skin disease prior to this. So I think that then brings us into the question of what exactly causes sarcoidosis. I don't think we yet know the exact etiology of it, but are there certain environmental factors and genetic factors that are thought to have a role? So essentially it's because it's a very rare disease so it's its prevalence has sort of been measured somewhere between 10 and 50 per 100,000 population and that that what quite wide span is uh, partly because of course the ethnic predisposition uh, that i mentioned earlier would dictate that some populations will have a much higher prevalence than others so it is certainly more common in african american and afro caribbean patients and within that cohort it is actually much more common for a first degree relative of a patient with sarcoidosis to be related to somebody else who has sarcoidosis if they are white. So African-Americans and Afro-Caribbeans more often get sporadic disease. Caucasian patients with sarcoidosis are much more likely to have a first or a second degree relative with the, who also have the disease, calling into question uh, whether there's a genetic component to it as well. The extent to which these genetic factors have been elucidated is very limited. Certain genome-wide association studies have been done and have identified some genes, so BTNL2, CCDC88B, and annexin A11 have all been found, there's been found to be a, a higher instance of those genes in those with sarcoidosis. And all of these genes have in common that they're involved in T-cell activation, regulation, or maturation. And so from this, the pathogenetic theory that sarcoid arises because of some T-cell mediated activity causing unbridled granulomatous inflammation. Now, the interesting story still on the topic of pathogenesis and etiology is that it has often been commented that an environmental exposure might actually be part of what is required for someone to manifest the disease. Certainly there have been reports of agricultural workers where they're working in an environment where there are aerosolized pesticides um, and herbicides, having an increased risk of developing pulmonary sarcoidosis. One very interesting study from the US looked at um, a spike in new presentations of pulmonary sarcoidosis in the five years following the World Trade Center 
disaster, which calls into question whether this large burden of particulate matter, which was suddenly launched into the New York environment, caused this spike. That was the, 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 the causative link that was made. Was this particulate matter acting as some kind of antigenic stimulus for creating granulomatous inflammation? So I guess it's fair to say that the whole story has not been clearly clearly sorted out or refined as yet. Thank you. So there's certainly a lot more we can learn in terms of etiology of sarcoidosis. Now let's talk about patient characteristics and clinical features of cutaneous disease. I mean, just speaking about the average patient, so it is a disease that can occur at any age, and certainly we have occasionally seen uh, pediatric pediatric presentations, but by and large, the cohort of patients that I look after are fifty plus. Um, so they're you know older, upper middle age, and older age. And the skin presentations uh, that I see, uh, I suppose, can broadly speaking be divided into those that I see commonly, um, and those would be uh, papular plaque and nodular morphology and sarcoidosis. So those are the most common presentations and they probably account together for more than half of what I see. Shortly after that, I suppose we would see um, scar-associated sarcoidosis and tattoo sarcoid. And following that, erythema nodosum, which of course is the classic one that uh, people are doing their MRCP and you say, what are the cutaneous manifestations of sarcoid? And nine times out of 10, they'll tell you it's erythema nodosum, which of course is, is, is factually correct, but certainly not the most common uh, manifestation that I see. Ulcerative sarcoidosis is uncommon, but is important because it is extremely difficult to treat. And when I see that, I know that I'm going to have a tough time getting that patient better because ulcerative sarcoidosis is the manifestation that uh, responds most um, sluggishly to treatment. So the morphology aspect is interesting. And if we bear in mind that papules, plaques and nodules are the most common. However, clinically, what's probably more important to me is the site at which those lesions are found. And the, the site that the lesions are found um, is important for a number of reasons. The first, I would say, taking into the account the, the patient's perspective on all of this, is that the vast majority of disease that I see um, is on the head and neck area. So on the nose, around the eyes, around the mouth, on the scalp. And that is important because in absolute terms, it's not very extensive. So it's not, if you calculated it in terms of body surface area involvement, it's, you know, it's, not, it's not a huge proportion of the body, but clearly it's in a cosmetically very conspicuous site and therefore patients are highly motivated to engage in treatment and get rid of it. The second reason that the site is important to me is that according to the site where it's found you can encounter particular consequences to the deposition of that sarcoid tissue at that site. So I'm thinking here particularly of the deposition of sarcoid at the medial canthi uh, bilaterally, so the, the, the sort of the inner part of the eye, 
And if disease is deposited here, it can either interfere with um, the secretion of tears or much more often the drainage of tears through obstruction of the lacrimal duct. And this leads to a symptom of frequent and ready tearing of the eye, sometimes referred to as epiphora. So E-P-I-P-H-O-R-A. And that is a troublesome symptom for patients. And it can be managed, hopefully by addressing the skin disease. But if not, the ophthalmology colleagues that we have can do dilatation of the lacrimal duct or indeed stenting of the lacrimal duct in cases where the obstruction is recurrent. You can often find site-specific involvement of the nose. And this is important for two reasons. The first is that there has been a study uh, published in the 1990s which demonstrated that if you had sarcoidosis affecting the skin of the nasal orifice, so the nasal rim or the, the septum of the nose, that you are more likely to have pulmonary involvement. So it's important to look beyond the nares if you see skin disease there. And the second reason it's important is that if you ask one question of every sarcoid patient you meet, please let it be, do you ever get stuffiness of your nose? Do you ever get nasal stuffiness? Because this is an extraordinarily common complaint amongst sarcoid patients, which they very rarely report to you unless they are asked directly about it. And it's troublesome. It's caused by sarcoid infiltration of the mucosa of the nose and also of the lymphatics um, at the back of the nose. And it can be really successfully and satisfyingly treated with a topical nasal spray a steroid nasal spray. Other site-specific manifestations that I think are of relevance are probably the scalp. I have a number of patients with sarcoidosis of the scalp, which went untreated for a period of time and which resulted in those patients uh, developing a scarring, a cicatricial hair loss, um, which is obviously very distressing and is a strong impetus to consider some systemic treatments. Did you have any comment, Ali, about the sort of morphologies of sarcoid that you saw while you were with us at King's? Um, well, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was, uh, in terms of morphology, uh, was whether there's a relationship between the type of cutaneous lesion, how acute the onset is, and whether that has um, any bearing on prognosis. Well, I think I think you're probably referring there to the sort of the the, the Loeffler's syndrome, um, which is a much more acute presentation of sarcoidosis, um, consisting of um, higher lymph nodes, erythema nodosum, and uveitis presenting, and that is an acute presentation. And I think you're probably correct. If we see erythema nodosum, it probably is in the context of a presentation where the symptomatology will have been much shorter in duration. When I see the other morphologies, like the plaques, the, the nodules, and the um, papules, it tends to be in the context of people who have had much more chronic symptomatology. My other observation about the, 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 the Loeffler syndrome is that I think that that is much more often a presentation in the Caucasian patients Mm-hmm. Um, than in the Afro-Caribbean, African-American, African population. So, yeah, I think that is, um, that, that, that is a good thing to point out to the, to the listeners. Okay, good. So in terms of diagnosing 
um, sarcoidosis? Are there, um, other than the characteristic lesions that we see and the presence of non-caseating granulomas on biopsy, are there any other markers that are pathognomonic or at least supportive of the diagnosis or correlate with disease activity? So I would say that, I mean, tissue really is the gold standard. And given that we are going to go on and treat a significant proportion of these people with a systemic agent, even if it's only prednisolone initially, I think it uh, behoves us to get tissue if we can. And I alluded to that earlier in the podcast. But I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, we do need to get other supporting evidence. And of course, the other thing that every MRCP graduate will remember is um, serum ACE, so angiotensin-perverting enzyme, um, which is a, is, I think is a very useful diagnostic marker. And it is, of course, something I send off in the initial set of bloods that um, each patient gets at first presentation. It has long been discussed um, whether ACE, serum ACE might have a role in monitoring disease response. And I have to say that certainly from the perspective of the skin disease, I have not found that a useful marker uh, as a, to, to track response to treatment. I think it's, it, it's very nonspecific. I don't think it responds in a, in, a, in a linear way to treatment. And I much prefer to rely on clinical parameters, like having objective photographs taken of the skin at baseline and being able to compare them when the patient comes back to see me, or other objective parameters such as lung function tests, radiological appearance um, of lungs or um, musculoskeletal system. Thank you. So that brings us to the end of our first episode on cutaneous sarcoidosis, where we've covered what sarcoidosis is, what causes it, who it typically presents in, and some of the classical cutaneous features that we see, as well as how we go about confirming the diagnosis of cutaneous sarcoidosis. Like all our episodes on this podcast, you can find a summary of what we've spoken about in this episode, as well as additional learning materials and references. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episodes of St. John's Derm Academy podcast. I'd just finally like to thank our sponsors of Derm Academy, Abvi, Selgene, Lily, Janssen, Novartis, Sanofi and UCB. They don't have any influence over the material that we produce, but their support is hugely important to us. Thank you very much.